Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Tonight, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor, we're going to trial. Simone Missick is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, tonight at 9, 8 central on CBS. Tonight, it's the CBS original comedy, The Neighborhood. I need at least a month to prepare for a debate, not six hours. Actually, it's four hours. <laughs> no, my watch is broken, too. With Cedric the Entertainer, Max Greenfield, and guest star Wayne Brady. You gotta fund the schools or graduate fools. I stole all my lines. Look, don't worry, I got a plan. Okay, well, what is it? Okay, so I don't have a plan. A new episode of The Neighborhood. You're gonna have to give them a show. Tonight, 8, 7 central on CBS. Big thanks to Matt Darty, Coach Matt Darty, longtime Tar Heel National Champ ACC Network analyst. That Matt Darty, he joins us every Thursday during the lunch hour, and he sets the plate for the cleanup hitter. Luke DeCock, Raleigh News and Observer, longtime sports columnist. He is back with us on the Technicom Hotline. Luke, how are you, my friend? I am good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I would, uh, and look, I'm not going to pretend to be uh, absolutely inconsolable over what happened to the Hurricanes, but I am pretty bummed for the Carolina Hurricanes, the way that that series very quickly turned south. And, you know, I saw some attempts at, uh, at trying to remain optimistic about the future and everything else yesterday, but that's a bitter pill to swallow, right? With the, the way this series took a sharp turn. It is. The, you know, the, the way that that game four ended uh, is is uncharacteristic of the of the hurricane and you know quite frankly uncharacteristic of any team in the playoffs typically teams that that quit like that to not to put too fine a point on it don't make the playoffs uh and and so that was a very unusual set of circumstances but i think in the scheme of the series so here's a series that only went five games every game was 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 the teams are separated by a single goal in the last minute of every game uh, that tells you how far, how wide the gap is, despite those score lines. Um, it was not a blowout of a series; no, not a single game was. But when push came to shove in that game, when when it became big boy hockey, when Charlie McAvoy knocked Jordan Stahl out of the game with a brutal clean hit, the Hurricanes folded their tent and went home, and went home one game later. So. You know, in the grand scheme of things, the Hurricanes have a ton of skill. They have a, 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 a defense that's fit for the modern NHL game that moves the puck really well and skates really well. But the playoffs are often a different kind of hockey. And the Bruins know how to play that game. And they're built to play that game. They have guys like Chris Wagner and Charlie Coyle who are depth players but play a, a, a heavy game. They, they, they'll hit you. They'll let you know you're there. Uh, they'll let you know they're there. And and the Bruins' defense is the same way. Matt Carlo, you know, McAvoy, they know Chara. You know, these are guys who will let you know they're there. And the Hurricanes don't have a lot of those guys. They have Joel Edmondson, who was hurt for the last four games of the series. They have Jordan Martinuk, who's a you know a fourth liner who got promoted to the first line and 
desperate attempt to get some jam going after Andre Svechnikov got hurt. And Svechnikov will hit people. And Brett Pesci's uh, pretty can, can be physical. He's not a physical player by nature. But the Hurricanes don't have a lot of guys like the Bruins have. And the Bruins have just as much skill. So that's the mix that the Hurricanes have to find. They played the Bruins twice in, in two years. They've won one playoff game against them in nine tries. That's where the bar is set in the Eastern Conference. That's the next hurdle the Hurricanes have to clear as a franchise. So so what is the outlook then? Is this, hey, it's still a, a young team with a bright future, or is there some hand-wringing and anxiety about what's next? What, what should the, the next couple of years or the view of this team be after what happened against the Bruins? No, I think it's still a young team with a bright future and, and, a, and a window that's, that's just opening in terms of being a contender. Uh, they need better goaltending. Uh, they need to, to, to find ways to play a heavier game. They need to be less soft, not to, again, to put too fine a point on it. They're a team right now that can win in the regular season and did a good job of that this year, especially coming into the, in, into the, the pause. I mean, they were really starting to hit their stride. But they're not a team yet that, that's built to win in the playoffs. And, and, and last year's run, you know, they, they swept the Islanders. That was another team that at the time was not built to play in the playoffs. And the Hurricanes had a dramatic skill advantage. Um, they were able to hold off a, a weary Washington Capitals team in the first round that was bigger and stronger, but didn't have the energy or the youthful vigor uh, or, quite frankly, the goaltending that the Hurricanes got from Peter Morazic in that series. And then they ran into a wall against the Bruins. And they ran into the same wall this year. So, yes, it's, it's an extremely skilled team. It's a team whose best players are, are some of its youngest players. Uh, incredible defense. Uh, but this and last year should be a, a lesson, if, if they're paying attention, that skill is great and skill gets you to the playoffs. And you need skill to win in the playoffs because the Bruins have skill, too. You know, don't sell the Bruins short. They're not a big Bunch of thugs. They've got some of the best players in the league out there. But Hurricanes need a little more of that on the, on the bottom half of the roster. And it's going to be interesting because this is a very analytics-driven franchise. And I'm not anti-analytics in any sense. It's just it's a pretty heavy portion of the, the decision-making quotient. And those are not typically those kind of players do not reflect well analytically. So my suspicion is they're going to have to go a little bit against the, the, their instincts, a little bit against the grain to get players like Jordan Martinuk, whose analytics aren't great, who can help them in the playoffs. So we'll see. I think that's kind of an internal contradiction they're going to have to wrestle with a little bit. Luke DeCock, Raleigh News and Observer. He's with us on the Technicom guest line. All right, let's go here. Uh, you wrote a piece two days ago, I think two days ago, entitled uh, Football on an Empty Campus. UNC sends clear message that student athletes don't exist. Now, I, I, there are plenty of, of things in this article that you and I definitely agree on. But why, to your mind, is this the definitive proof or the smoking gun that, you know, now officially the student athletes, they, they're not student athletes, they're just athletes? You know, I, obviously, I think you and I would both agree that there, there have been, you know, this has been a, a trend that's existed for a while. But the NCAA's legal justification for all of its rules, for the very concept of amateurism, is that, their, their quote-unquote, student-athletes are students who just happen to play sports. And what we've seen now at UNC and elsewhere, I, I, you know, people think this is singling out UNC. It's not. It just happens to be the most visible and local case. And if NC State or East Carolina had been in the same fix that UNC has found itself in, then, then you know, the argument would change. It's not a UNC thing. It's maybe a UNC Board of Governors thing because it's their boneheaded plan to bring every student back to campus in this huge rush and think it was going to be okay. But the NCAA argument has always been these are just students who happen to play sports. 
And what we've seen now with the pandemic, it's a very clear lens, that that's not the case. There are students who are being told, go home. It's not safe for you here if you can go home. And there are athletes who are being told, you can stay here. We can make it safe for you. And to me, when you get down to matters of life and death, and there are students and there are athletes who, let's be clear, are also students. You know, there are some of them very good students, many of them very good students. But they are not students who happen to play sports. They are athletes who happen to also be students. And that's crystal clear with the fact that the campus is open to them and not to every other student other than, you know, international students and people with nowhere else to go. But if you can go home, go home. If you're an athlete, we will take all the steps we need to do to make it safe for you, which is great. If you're going to keep the athletes there, you need to keep them safe. And by and large, schools have done a pretty good job with that. But the idea that they're just students who happen to play sports is, to me, this was an absolutely clarifying moment of, Obviously, they are a completely different class within the university, and it's time to stop pretending they're not. Well, I, I mean, look, if you want to go that way, I think it's probably long past time. But at the same time, it's not. It's always been the case that they're there to play sports in exchange for a, a full scholarship, most of them anyway. And so, I mean, look, we could start getting into the weeds with this. I could say, well, Luke, they, they all stay on campus through winter break to keep playing basketball games. And, you know, these guys are there during summer for workouts and things like that. Hold on, just get, give me a second here. You know, all I'm saying here is, Luke, that like these, what I said yesterday, again, there's, there's so much more of this that I think you and I do agree on than we don't. What bothers me, though, is part of the narrative that it seems like we're painting this picture of these student athletes, and I'll call them that for now, but if, if only out of repetition, that they're being led to the stadium on a prison bus in shackles and being forced to play. Luke, these kids are overwhelmingly telling you they really want to play hell their parents are telling you they want them to play so i just have an issue with this being the smoking gun apparently that's all i don't know how that's even relevant of course they want to play that this isn't about them necessarily this is about a system that's set up to restrict what they can do the money they can earn even away from sports you can't have a youtube channel and maintain your eligibility Uh and the justification for that has always been they're just like regular students and when it came when push comes to shove when it came to to health, the university is willing to go to extreme lengths to protect the health of these athletes, lengths it can't afford to or won't go to to protect students at large. I mean, how can it be any clearer than that? It's, we're talking about health. We're talking about their lives. We're talking about a pandemic and athletes and rights and privileges that the university won't extend to the student body. You can't say they're just like regular students. Well, no, they're not, because regular students are more often than not paying to attend, whereas these athletes are giving their services on the floor and the field in exchange for a scholarship. They've never been the same. Like that, Again, I, I keep stressing this because I think that right, – well, go ahead, jump in there. Say, never, say, you've never read a, an, an NCAA legal brief then. My point is not what it was. My point is there's no way to defend this system now. The entire system has been defended on this concept. And the NCA has one lawsuit based on this concept. It is not an antitrust violation because it is in the interest of maintaining amateurism to restrict what athletes can do. So I guess my question for you is then, and by the way, to your point about the system itself needing reform, needing change, yeah, name, image, and likeness, fix it, triple the stipend. What I don't care. Whatever these kids do, whatever much more that they make, does not impact my life in any material way. I guess my thing is though, is this being used as a reason to say, hey, they're not like everybody else, so you can't play, or just to establish that they're not like everyone else? Because I think most of us already did believe that. No, I think, I think we're talking about tearing down the legal justification for a system. I mean, it doesn't matter what you believed or I believed before. It matters what the NCA has been able to prove in court. And to me, this brings the whole edifice finally tumbling down. How can you 
stand in front of a judge and make that argument when, when you look at what's happening at UNC and some of these other schools in, in, in this crisis. It's, it's really torn the veil off. It's torn the fig leaf away. I mean, the fig leaf for the idea that, you know, going pro in something other than sports, this, these defenses that the NCAA has created, it's, what, it's, the, it's an emperor's new clothes situation. Now. And, yeah, you know, like people are like, well, you know, college athletics has value. Absolutely it does. There's no question. No one's saying to burn the whole thing down. That's what it feels like to a lot of people a lot of the time, though. That's what the narrative feels like. Well, I mean, like the, the idea that NIL, that further cost, uh, cost of attendance, that players getting a trust fund based on television revenue is going to ruin college sports is a fundamental part of the NCAA's existence. And the reality is when you look at the Olympics, Things seem to have gone on just fine when the Olympics abandoned the amateur ideal. Yeah. I mean, Usain Bolt makes billions. No one cares. It doesn't mean people stop rooting for Usain Bolt. You know, no one stops rooting for the dream team. Uh, and, and that's the argument in college athletics. That's, again, why this is necessary to restrict these things, to hold these kids back. And the, the point is you can't defend that system legally anymore. The idea that this quote-unquote student-athlete exists is not. It, it's a different class. And that class deserves rights. Oh, look, I, rights I need to be honest. Most of what you just said, Luke, I, I can agree with. Again, change the system, make it work. I do wonder, though, is before we let you go, do you think the development in Chapel Hill makes it more or less likely that the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 forge ahead? You know, that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to that one because the plan to play was almost feels like it was independent of whether there were students on campus, despite what John Swafford said this spring. So I don't know that it does necessarily. Now, if having students back on campus and the waves of infections that we're seeing at UNC and, and Notre Dame and others means that you can't keep the football players safe, even with students off campus sent home or whatever, and that hasn't been the case yet at Notre Dame, uh, you know, that, then I think it becomes a different issue. But my position on what the ACC will do and whether it should do or is, is, is irrelevant at this point is, They've given themselves this lead time till mid-September, and they're going to use that to monitor the situation as long as they can before they have to make a decision. You know, a week from now, the situation may look completely different. Um, and, and, you know, obviously that they feel differently about the medical situation than the Pac-12 or the Big Ten did, and that's fine. That's their decision to make. But, but they've also given themselves more lead time to make that decision, and I expect that uh, regardless of what happens at UNC or Notre Dame or NC State or anywhere else, they'll continue to continue to, to, to wait and see. Luke, you're the man, buddy. Appreciate the time, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Absolutely.